This episode of Scandal Water contains adult themes and descriptions of violence. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Stories and scandal water. It's where you need to be. Stories and scandal water. Let's pour you a cup of tea. Hey. How are you? I'm good. What are you drinking? I am drinking tea from the Charleston Tea Plantation. Yes, you are. I am in a new fine bone china cup. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you're here to tell me a story, I hear. I am. So this story is a little dark. Well, it's it's a lot dark. Okay. So I thought instead of jumping right in, Mm -hmm. we could start with something lighter. Okay. Knowing your background with theater, Ashley. Mm I thought I would throw a question at you. Oh, okay. okay. So yes. you think about the phrase, the show must go on. Yes. Give us a time. Can you think of a time when you um, you pushed on through? Like the show went on even though you were faced with some kind of challenge. You were sick or you were dealing with something that just made performing a huge obstacle, but you went on and, and did it anyway. Nothing leaps to mind as far as something I was going through. I think just every performance for me is I push on through it because I have tremendous stage fright, Mm. debilitating, nearly stage fright. I remember before doing the Miracle Worker, I would sit backstage and I would do kind of like push-ups against the wall. And it's, I kind of try to envision it like this is a train that has left the station and you have to get on it. You would think that if I was this miserable doing it, I wouldn't do it. (laughs) But it's really, it's, it's, it's tough every time I get out there because the first time that I'm out there, I'm thinking, I am a person who is acting, look at me moving my arms, look at me doing this, look at me doing that. And then about 20 minutes into it, I get get into the actual character and start having the actual fun. But it has always been hard for me to overcome. I simultaneously want to do it, love to do it, can't imagine not doing it, and also am terrified of it. That is so funny because mm-hmm. we've known each other all these mm-hmm, years and mm-hmm. I would have never said that you have debilitating stage fright. Like oh, yeah. I would never have thought that. Oh yeah. Wow. Do you have one? I think about the time that I was in a play. It's been like four or five years ago. And I had, I'm not sure what I was recovering from. I can't remember if it was like bronchitis or the flu or something. But I had developed this terrible cough. Mm. And it was like our last performance. I think you were, I think you may have. What show was uh, it? Critics' Choice, I think, was the oh, name I remember. of it. That just triggered me into remembering one of my one of the things I am most scared about is getting hiccups on stage because I don't get cutesy little hiccups. They're like <laughs> they're like I'm gonna lean back like <gasps> it sounds like that. So I can't ever stop it when it happens. So that's one of the things in my worst fantasy. Like, what if I get the hiccups? What's going to happen? How am I going to do this? More more fear than for well, no, of course the biggest fear is for getting lines. And right, I have done that. Right, but I've never gotten the hiccups yet. But that's on my bucket list of will probably happen something to 
something fearful to look forward to. Right. It's going to happen at some point. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. So finish your story. Well, it's just that I, you know, you're, I had one of the, the lead roles and I had this terrible cough and it had made my voice hoarse. And so I'm performing and I could almost feel the audience sympathizing with me because Aww. I am just like croaking through my <laughs> lines and like, you know, and trying, I'm doing all the, the hot drinks and the, mm -hmm. the cough drops and all of it. And I mean, I made it through the performance, but it was definitely not my best night. You just reminded me, I, I must have blocked it from my memory, but what we just did, the Lemonade Jamboree, mm. uh, the sequel to The Miracle Worker. Again, I wrote this little sketch where it was Annie and Helen like um, 10 or so years later. And it was the last week of filming. And I had been healthy the entire summer. And there was a shoot that we did where the one of the girls wanted to shoot in a cornfield. And I was like, I don't want to shoot in a cornfield. She's like, please, it'll be so good. <laughs> so she talked me into doing it. I, wouldn't, I didn't even go in the entire cornfield. I just stood on the edges of it. And she went in the cornfield. The next day I woke up and I had the biggest allergic reaction. My throat was raw. I was coughing. I was dog sick. And Ugh. she was too. And it was like three days before we filmed this. The one thing that I was in for the whole summer. And <laughs> of course. She felt terrible. And I was like, it's not your fault. And we were both dog sick that day. And I remember I told the other cast members, I don't have COVID. I just have had an extreme mm. reaction to this corn this allergic reaction to this corn and my throat just felt raw and I was probably hoarse for about two weeks. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. But on the day of filming, they felt so bad for me and there's nothing I could do. You know, in filming, there is no redos. I just drank a lot of water. I had hand sanitizer and the other girl and I just hand sanitized in between each one just in mm -hmm. case. And I just kind of croaked through it and hoped it sounded okay. I just tried to, because I had to have an Irish accent. So I tried to make it like, no, she sounds this way. when she's. <laughs> this is purposeful. <laughs> this, is, this is on purpose. But just in between takes, what the guy playing Mark Twain, because it's when Annie and, and Helen meet Mark Twain and the fellow playing Mark Twain, John, he looks at me. He's like, I feel so bad for oh. you. <laughs> Thank you, John. But. I'll be okay. <laughs> you know? Oh, well. Nobody knows what Annie sounded like. Maybe that's what she sounds like. A girl who'd been playing in corn. It was it was your interpretation. That's right. Your artistic right. interpretation right. of the character. That's it. <laughs> of course, with our podcast theme, mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of our episodes, of course, are, are going to be very light, very interesting, but very lighthearted. This, as I said before, is not one of those. However, I know you know, you and I both have an interest in um, true crime. So, so. so it, it's a fascinating story, but it's... Frighteningly um, so. We, it, we have a very big... Uh, <laughs> my husband, Brian, says that he's a little worried about my true crime um, addiction. And I told him he doesn't have to worry until I stop listening to the true crime. There you go. <laughs> then I figured it out. And just last night, he's like, you know, you haven't listened in a while. <laughs> I said, well, I did warn you. We both need the shirt that said the husband did it, right? Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. But, but this is one of those stories that is, is pretty dark and pretty disturbing, but also weirdly fascinating. Okay. So today I'm going to tell you a story of Daniel Wozniak, if I say that name correctly, who was the man who actually performed in a musical just hours after committing a double murder. Ooh. Right. Sam Hare was this... Wonderful man. It was back in May of 2010. And Sam was... This murder took place in 2010? It did. Okay. Yeah. And Sam was a 26-year-old college student who okay. lived in Costa Mesa, California. 
Um, and he lived in this apartment complex that was called the Camden Martin Eek. And it sounded like a really cool place to live, if, especially if you were a young adult or mm -hmm. a college kid, because it was it was like aimed toward that, that demographic. Okay. It was the kind of place where they had like Taco Tuesdays and pool parties and, you know, everybody around you was like the same age and no kids. And, you know, it was, it was like a fun place to be. But... Sam was not a typical college student. He was actually a um, war veteran. So here he is, 26 years old, and he has already served in the Army. Do he you is, know what war? Well, he fought in Afghanistan. Okay. Some great information came from a 2020 episode called The Final Act, which aired May 31st of 2019 originally. But they had some interviews with some of his Army buddies, and they talked about the fact that Sam not only volunteered to go into one of the most dangerous places in Afghanistan, but but he's the guy who they were explaining that there were certain jobs that you had to fulfill that were that were, you know, scarier than others and, and he was the guy who would end up doing those. Oh. Yeah. So he was a hero. He was a war hero. And at this point though, he had left the army. He's staying as I said, in, in Costa Mesa in this apartment, and he's attending college at the Orange Coast Community College. His goal, though... Um, so, wait a minute. Did he go into the Army before he went into college, or yes. did he start college and then leave to go to the Army? My understanding is... Straight he, out of high school? Right. He'd gone okay. into... He'd gone into the Army, and now he was coming back gotcha. to, to catch college. And he had um, a lot of combat pay he'd been given, and so he was using like $62,000 he had. And he was using see, this that's money. See, what stinks. You see these guys that just have so much promise, and then we're, we're the only reason we're talking about him is because... Something awful happened. Something awful. Right, yeah. right. But he was using this money with the goal of, you know getting through college this community take these courses and then he was actually going to re-enroll in the army because now he wanted to kind of move up the ranks he wanted to be an officer wow. so he he did feel a passion for for the military they also said he did have some ptsd they thought he was showing signs of ptsd mm -hmm. because it was so dangerous um and one of the things they talked about was some of these nightmares that he experienced mm -hmm. sam was really good friends with a girl name and i want to get her name Correct. Julie Kibuishi is how you say it. So Julie was at the same college and she was studying fashion design and she and Sam met in a class. And so they became really good friends. Julie um, was, was described as just being a wonderful student, really kind of like this bright light, super enthusiastic. She had this passion for dance. You know, she had been dancing since she was like four. Just a super fun girl. And, and is these... she going to turn evil or does she stay nice the whole time <laughs> because I want to like her? No, she stayed amazing. Okay, good, good, yeah, good. Yeah, but the two became really good buds. In fact, you know, they talked about each other so much that their family would ask if they were dating and they both insisted there was no romance there. In fact, he told his dad that she was like, it would be like dating his kid sister and she told her mom that, you know, Sam's this really big guy, but he's like a teddy bear. Oh. So they both insisted they were just friends. She okay. did tutor him in one of his classes, and he got an A. Yeah. They just hung out a lot, and mm -hmm. she liked to hang out at his apartment complex, which I can understand because it sounded really fun. Yeah, it does. Yeah. So we've kind of we've set the scene there. But then, of course, this all leads to the dark stuff, which is um, the murder. The murder was actually, the first murder was actually discovered. Okay, wait. How did they know Daniel? Because have you told me how they met? We have not said that okay, yet. Okay, it's I thought it's, I missed it. It's coming. Okay, it's coming. All I'm right. being tricky here. Okay. <laughs> I thought, wait, he hasn't even met the guy and he's going to kill him? What? I'm going to kind of like lay it out the way it was discovered, I if that's you. okay. Yes. Yeah. The murder was actually discovered by Sam's dad, Steve. Oh. Okay, so Sam was super close to his parents. Mm -hmm. He was one of those great guys who would like 
stay in close contact and go visit his parents all the time. And so, so he was supposed to go home for the weekend. And when Sam didn't come home that weekend, this is the, the weekend of like May 21st of 2010, they started getting worried and they were got even more worried when they couldn't get hold of Sam on the phone because Sam was not the kind of guy who turned off his phone, but his dad noticed the calls are going straight to voicemail. This, you know, this just seemed really weird. Do you ever, sorry, this just struck me. Do you ever, when you hear these true crime stories and they say a date, do you ever remember what you were doing on that date? Very May 21st, 2010. Like to me, I think the next day or so would have been our premiere of No Lost Cause. Are you serious? I think so. I oh, think so. Wow. Or, or did we... I'd have to look that up. But that's just what struck me as I think in 2010. So a few days... It's just weird to think what's happening in different people's lives. Here we are having a highlight moment and then this poor mm -hmm. person is having the worst moment. Right. But I, I think of that sometimes. When they give dates, I'm like, what was I doing? Oh, I know what I was doing at that time. Yeah. I, I can't, I'm not as good with my dates as you apparently are, but I will try to put it in context. Mm -hmm. I'll think about mm -hmm. like... You know, oh, at this time. Or I'll think my... how old I was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And something else weird. Sometimes I'll think when they say, this is this is such a weird thing that I do. But sometimes when they'll say, if it was pre-something-something something, 1993, <laughs> oh gosh. I'll say, oh, they never saw Jurassic Park. Oh. <laughs> I think that it's so weird. <laughs> Your timeline is, is pre-Jurassic Park <gasps> and post-Jurassic Park. Oh, well, they probably got to see that movie. Oh, gosh. I think you have a little bit of an illness. I do. I do. <laughs> oh, that's... Okay, sorry. Go on with your story. Okay. All right. Well, we needed to lighten things up for a minute, so yes. that was probably good. This is where it gets really bad. When they couldn't get a hold of Sam, Sam's dad, Steve, Steve Hare, he decided he was going to drive on out to Sam's house to check on him. So when he went into the apartment, things looked normal at first. You know, the living room area, everything kind of looked okay. But then he got to Sam's bedroom. And when he walked into Sam's bedroom, of course... He didn't recognize who this woman was, but Steve saw that there was a woman dead mm -hmm. who was kneeling on the floor, and she had, like, her upper body um, laid out across the bed. And when he called 911, you know, he described that there was a lot of blood coming from her head. Mm. And, and that made sense because later the detective discovered that, that she had been shot in the head. Mm. And Steve also told the 911 operator, this is a quote, it looks like there was sexual activity. Mm. And this is probably because her pants had pulled down and there was actually some writing on the back of her shirt, which was a, a, a hateful message. Uh -huh. It said, all yours and then F you. Oh. Yeah. Of course, this was obviously just horrific and, and just awful. So Sam wasn't there? No sign of Sam okay. at all. So the his, Sam's dad found... This woman, the woman. in his apartment. Okay. And like they... On this interview that I saw, they asked, what did you think? And he said, you know, like his first thoughts. He thought Sam did it? He wondered. Like he, like he, even he wondered. He was like, what is um, going on here? Has my son made some horrible mistake? What like is, a PTSD. Right. Snap. You know, it was just, I'm sure the worst moment of his life. Of course, the detectives come and when they started investigating, there were a few key pieces of evidence that, that they kind of honed in on. First of all, in the bedroom, there were some red flags, one being this knife, although it looked like it had been unused, but here's this big, scary-looking knife, and then there were some books. One of the books was like kind of almost a how-to, how to engage in combat and fight. But this and is Sam's room, this right? This is Sam's bedroom, okay. right? And the other one is something about the wonders of sex. Oh. So this is kind of making them feel, eh. 
And then, and then they also find Julie's purse, and this is how they identify her. I was thought it was Julie. Yeah, no. it was Julie. And they also find her cell phone. Okay. Like Sam's dad, they're immediately making inferences. It's looking like Sam did this, right? His his car is missing. His passport is missing. His wallet's gone. And so they immediately theorized Sam has committed this murder. Something went wrong. He's on the run. And there was also a little bit of back history that came out. At one point, Sam had actually been charged with the murder of a friend. He had been tried for murder, oh. but he was acquitted. Was um, it like a bar fight or something? No, it was It was kind of an, an odd thing. There wasn't a lot of detail, but it said he was accused of luring a friend into an area where there was known gang activity, and this friend ends up getting murdered there, By shot and killed. Right. But they took him to trial, Sam to trial, and, and he was acquitted and found to be not guilty. But this still makes the detectives mm -hmm. suspicious. Mm -hmm. So things are not looking good. Mm -hmm. And then they, and they can't find Sam. And they can't find Sam. Then they get more what they feel to be confirmation or at least kind of affirmation of their suspicions uh, when they start looking through Julie's phone messages, her okay. texts. Okay. So earlier that day, there was a text from Sam to Julie that said, helping Dan, then heading to folks for the weekend. Okay. Okay. Just real casual message. And, and the de detectives figured out, they knew that this Dan in the message was probably the downstairs neighbor, neighbor Daniel Wozniak, this guy who was getting married soon. And, and they also, there was a wedding invitation on the counter in Sam's apartment. Okay. So, so it was for the same guy, right? Daniel okay. Wozniak, his wedding to Rachel Buffett. But then as they're going through the texts in Julie's phone, they see later in the evening, it's like really different. Like the whole tone has shifted. And it's, it's several hours later. It's sounding really urgent. And there's a message that says, can you come over at midnight alone? Very upset. Need to talk. And then another. From Sam to Julie. From Sam to Julie. Okay. Another one. I'm hurting with some bad family crap. I can't be alone. No sex. Okay. Right? So. Which they're not doing that anyway. Right. Really weird in a very different tone. Okay. Yeah. So my um, knowledge of true, true crime says to me, Sam was not sending those messages. Well, you make some good inferences, Ashley. <laughs> you make some I've good. I've heard enough podcasts. <laughs> you know how this works. Apparently the urgency of those messages worked. And they had brought Julie over to the apartment. Lord. I know. And this, oh, this is, this is where it gets even sadder. They found out, they, you know, as they kind of investigate and they interview, you know, people around Julie's life, they realize she had been out eating with her brother when those urgent texts had started coming through. And it was because her brother had invited her to come out and eat because he wanted to ask her to be part of his wedding that was coming up. And he had given her a tiara because they were all so excited. And she was, like, super thrilled. And she actually still had that tiara on when she was murdered. Oh, my gosh. I know. I know. Sam is looking really guilty at this point. And so the detectives, one way that they're going to they're try to track him down is they're going to watch his credit card activity. Okay. So they start to see some ATM withdrawals going through. And, and then uh, there's a pizza delivery purchase. Mm -hmm. But then when they go and they find those ATM camera tapes, instead of seeing Sam withdrawing the money, they see a teenage boy. Oh. Right. 
So they track him down through the pizza delivery. Okay. They find out where the pizza was delivered. Okay. And they literally have like almost like a whole SWAT team show up and move into this house because like, they're expecting to find Sam. Right. They go in. They find this teenage boy. Okay. Who is just stunned in the boy's bedroom. This this little fella is, um, one, one report says he's 16. Another says 17. And as you look through, you'll see lots of different sources that conflict on that. So I'm not sure. He's either 16 or 17. Okay. But his name is Wesley Freelich. And he is stunned by all this, but he has Sam's debit card in his bedroom. So where did he get it? Well, <laughs> he tells them okay. that his friend, Daniel Wozniak. Oh, oh, nice. Yeah. Who he has been in some plays with, or at least <laughs> one play, and is now kind of like his mentor. He really looks up to Daniel because he's this older actor who's kind of like taken Wesley under his wing a little bit. Daniel had approached him. And asked him to help him out by withdrawing money. He told him that they were helping Sam. Okay. Sam owed a bunch of money to a Bales bondsman. Mm -hmm. And he needed to make a lot of withdrawals. And so Daniel was helping him make the withdrawals. But now Daniel needed Wesley to help with this. Right? Mm -hmm. And he brought a folder with all this paperwork just to assure this 16-year-old boy that it's all legal and everything's good. And so he tells Wesley that they're going to, here's the ATM. He gives him the password, the PIN number, excuse me. And he tells him he has to wear a hat and glasses. And that. And this kid didn't think this was suspicious? He apparently trusted Daniel and didn't know how things worked. Oh, gosh. Okay. Right? The first time they go to get this, you can only take it out in $400 increments, apparently. And the first time they go, Daniel actually drives in a different car parks in a different parking lot that's adjoining where Wesley is. And Wesley goes up, gets the money, and then, you know, passes it over to Daniel. Now the police are going to be investigating Daniel. Um, yes. They had already remembered that text message that had said helping Daniel that had mm -hmm. come through earlier in the day. They had seen that wedding invitation. And now it looks as though he is involved in this really strange ATM withdrawal thing. So we need to give a little background on Daniel. But before we do that, why don't we take a short break? Sounds good to me. So Daniel Wozniak was 26 years old. And as we mentioned before, he was living in the same apartment complex that Sam lived in, but he's downstairs. And Daniel lives with his 23-year-old fiance, Rachel Buffett. Okay. Now, both Daniel and Rachel were huge community theater people. Okay. In fact, like they both aspired to like, you know, go make it big. But at this time, they are both unemployed. Mm. Well, community theater doesn't pay. No. And they're regional theater, but not community theater. And they're not holding down any other jobs either. Ah. Yeah. Okay. And this apartment complex is not free, in case we hadn't mentioned that. Okay. Because <laughs> so. if there was an apartment complex that was that cool and free, where do I sign up? Right. But at the moment, oh, I should mention this too. Rachel was a, a former Disneyland princess. Rachel. What did she play? Does it say? What? It does not say which princess, but I, I should have known you would ask that. Mm. I should have dug around a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> well, if she's evil, I don't care. <laughs> well, then you don't care. Oh, Rachel. Okay. So at this moment, they are both actually starring together in the musical Nine at a local community theater in their area. Okay, Nine. Uh, I saw that movie with Daniel Day-Lewis. It's about a man who has nine women that influence his life. 
That sounds right. Okay. I am not familiar with it, but based on a few of the little excerpts I saw, that sounds like you just nailed it. Yeah, I, I, it was a pretty good movie, I think, apparently. I just remember Daniel Day-Lewis, and I think Nicole Kidman played the movie star Ingenue, maybe? Hmm. Anyway. May have to go watch that Okay. Now. Okay. So as I mentioned before, neither of them are employed, and they are struggling for money. It mentioned a few different times that they were two months behind on rent mm. and they were facing eviction. And apparently they had been, or at least Daniel had been evicted before from a different apartment. I'm not sure if Rachel was with him at that time. Apparently they were struggling so badly for money that it even tells a story about the stranger, a jazz musician named Chris Williams, actually overhearing them at a party one night talking about their money problems. And he somehow ends up loaning them like a couple thousand dollars. What? I know. I don't have that skill. I know, right? They had um, two friends who, who were being interviewed who mentioned that out of the blue, he, Daniel, approached them asking them to loan him $500 because he wanted to, to secure this photographer for the wedding that Rachel really liked. Mm -mm. Right. Mm -mm. Mm -hmm. So apparently it was really on his mind, not... So, I heard a lot more about needing money for the honeymoon wedding, and the wedding than, than for the rent. Life? Right. Life. Okay. Exactly. The police ask Dan to come in because they want to, you know. Sounds like a person of interest to me. Right. And he declines, telling them that, sorry, he's got his bachelor party that night. Oh, you're just at the top of the list, Dan. Mm -hmm. So um, the police didn't really like that. Nope. And they decided to go ahead and track him down. Yeah. So they end up. It kind of talks a little bit about their journey where they, they kind of check out some different restaurants until they find the sushi restaurant where he is with his bachelor party. Well, he and wasn't lying about that then. <laughs> he was telling the truth about that part. <laughs> and they actually go in and arrest him at his bachelor really? party. Really? So yeah, they, they, they take him in. Wow. Let's well, set arrest. I think I think that's the right word. I think I'm going to stick with arrest. Okay. Okay. Now, here's the story that Daniel tells. Mm -hmm. He says to the police that Sam had offered to pay him money to withdraw money from Sam's account as, some, as part of some kind of an ATM scam, which made sense to no one, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Well, it made sense to Daniel. But, well, right. <laughs> but only for a short time because as the interrogation goes on, that story starts to change too. Like he, oh, he can't okay. even stick to a story. So little details start to change. This is another red flag. Daniel, you should know, stick to the script. Right? Yeah. But that's another red flag. And then at some point, he, he mentions uh, some guy in a dark hat. Like, he just changes the story a lot. The pressure increases, hours go by, and, and Dan starts to kind of break down a little bit. So at one point, he kind, of shocks, he kind of shocks the detectives by suddenly volunteering that on Saturday morning, he had a conversation during which Sam admitted that he had shot someone in his apartment in a fit of rage. Okay. So now the detectives are like, so Daniel had knowledge that there was a murder that occurred in Sam's apartment, okay? So Daniel then goes on to say that Sam basically forced him to help him get away. Mm -hmm. So the detectives ask how. He says, well, he was threatening me. And then he said he would hurt Rachel if I didn't help him. So I had no choice. And so he, you know, they said, where did Sam have you take him? To a mall, which doesn't seem like a really great place to, to not out. be seen. Yeah, yeah. Right. But but that's the story. He took Sam to a mall. Sam disappeared. That's how he helped him get away. They convinced Daniel to give him the, D the DNA, and that makes him nervous. So suddenly he volunteers, oh, hey, you know, on that Friday, the day of the I murder, was in his apartment? I was in his apartment, uh, by yeah, the way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, And um, I, I know I used the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Might have been on the patio. Not sure. 
Okay, but total denial that he, he never saw Julie, never saw her body, no, no, nothing like that. Now, this was funny. You'll appreciate this. The detectives commented that during this interrogation, it was like Daniel was on stage performing. Mm -hmm. Like they literally noted that if he wanted to make a point, he would stand or he would raise his voice and he would sometimes like, like I, I thought of blocking, mm -hmm. like he would like move, you know, across the room. And, um, and, and then at one point it looked like he thought he had talked his way out of it and that he thought he was going to be released. And then they tell him, no, go sit back down. Down, and as he goes on talking, they share with him, put himself in a position where, if nothing else, he has made himself an accessory to the murder, right? Yeah. After the fact. Yeah. They tell him, you're going to stay in arrest. And this is where he starts to panic. And he keeps saying, I just want to get to my wedding on Friday. More interrogation. He finally admits he did see the body. And they ask him, what did you see? And he says, I saw the two gunshot wounds in her head. This is where he did himself in. Mm -hmm. Because... You could not tell there were two gunshot wounds. Mm. Anybody looking at it, the detectives have made a point about you would have only thought there was one. You could not tell. So they know he has to somehow have deeper involvement if he understands and knows there were two gunshot wounds. Somehow mm. he knows. Because he's not going to go up there and like examine her body. Right. Unless he was there when it happened to know that there was two. Right. Either Sam told him or he was there when it happened or something's up. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they continue to to push him. Now he admits he helped Sam clean up after the murder. So at this point, the detectives bring out a new trick. They decide to bring Rachel into the room with Daniel. So the detectives are there still. They're kind of listening they in. They don't let them talk to each other by themselves. No, they're right. not alone. But they have Daniel, like he's sitting in a chair in a corner. They have Rachel over here. And Daniel is telling about his involvement and helping Sam get away and cleaning up from the murder and all of these things. And Rachel is absolutely emotionless. I mm. mean, matter of fact, it she's almost clipped. Like she's sitting there with her legs crossed, looking all cute and put together with her little blonde hair. And she's like, well, why did you do that, Daniel? And I mean, it was very, very odd. Check it out on that 2020 episode if you want to. Okay. But, but it's very, uh, very strange. So after the interview, Daniel is taking to this holding cell. And this must be another thing that the detectives do. Because there's a phone, apparently, where you can use it. I don't know, freely. And Daniel uses that phone. And he makes a phone call to Rachel, not realizing that these phone calls are, of course, recorded. Hello. It's like they haven't seen any TV ever. <laughs> or just Why stop to think about it. That wouldn't record what you're saying. You're in a police station. Rachel goes to Dan's family because she's going to tell his parents what has happened. She runs into Daniel's brother, Tim. Okay. Tim panics at the news of what's happening with Daniel, that he's been arrested, that he's you know involved with all of this. And he tells Rachel that he has some evidence related to the case. Rachel now has decided she's going to go share this information with the police. But before she does, she calls Dan on this phone mm -hmm. that is recorded, right? Mm -hmm. So she tells him on this recorded call what's happening and that Tim has some evidence and she needs to report it right away because she doesn't want to get in trouble. And Dan says, here's a quote, on this phone call, then I'm doomed. Mm. And then he admits to Rachel that he had called his brother Tim to help get rid of some evidence. And he begs her not to go to the police. And she's literally driving there as she's making this phone call. And she says, no, babe, I'm going to do it. And when he's, he's like, please, he's begging. He's like, trust me, please don't do it. This is what she says. You realize they're recording this phone conversation anyways. You're being an absolute ass to try to and lie again. And then she said... 
Tim said he had a murder weapon. Mm. And Daniel says, yeah, he does. After she just told him he was being recorded. Right? He tells her, well, now he's going to have to go do something. And she's never going to see him again. And he tells her, imagine the worst. That is what I did. So he has basically now confessed oh. to the murder on this recorded phone call. He tells the jailer he wants to speak to the detective. And then he calls back. Rachel again so that they can do more of this conversation on the recorded line. And at this point, they're, they're having a discussion. He's asking her, basically, should I go to a mental institution or a prison? As though he gets to pick. Right, yeah. Yeah. He really does need to watch more yes, crime TV. Yes, he does. Because, yeah. uh, okay, Daniel, I, I'll tell you how you get married on Friday. You don't murder people <laughs> there on you Wednesday. Go. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That just seems like basic knowledge. He's not the smartest guy. Not the smartest guy. Yeah. Daniel goes back to the detectives. He's crying. Mm -hmm. He admits that he murdered both Sam and Julie, oh. which is actually a shock to the police because at that point, they honestly still thought that Sam was on the run. Really? Yeah. They did not know that, that Sam had been killed too. Really? Yes. And then this is where it all starts to come out. Daniel explains he had killed Sam first and every bit of it was about money. So he, he just wanted some of his money? Sam had told Daniel about his $62,000 in combat pay. Oh. Yeah. And he decided he wanted the money. So he had asked Sam to help him move some things at the Liberty Theater at the Los Alamitos Air Base on Friday morning. Told him it was up in the attic, gets him into the attic, which is very private, very alone. And when Sam bends down to help lift something, he shot Sam in the head. Oh, my gosh. Oh, and this it's just even more awful because Sam was still alive after the first gunshot, not really registering what had happened to him. Oh so he told Daniel, I need help. Something hit me. Oh. And Daniel reloaded and shot him again. Oh my gosh. I know. I know. Oh, but it gets way worse. Oh gosh. I know. Daniel tells the detectives that he was trying to disguise Sam's body. He didn't want him to be discovered and identified. So he removed his head, his hands, oh and gosh. one of his arms. And then they asked where his body parts were, and he had taken them, he'd put them in plastic bags, and then put them inside a backpack, and then driven over, and he had buried them in shallow holes in the El Dorado Nature Center. And we discover much later that the only way they ever were able to identify it with Sam was because of a heart tattoo on his chest that said Mom and Dad. Oh my gosh. I know. I know. The detectives literally asked him in the interview what was going through his mind while he was dismembering Sam. And he said he was smiling and laughing. What is wrong with this guy? I, I kind of wonder if that response was, was he trying to go to the mental institution yes, at that point? That was that sense. a calculated answer? Yes, that makes sense. Yeah. Yep. Because that, there's no way that he could, if he was, that's insane. And if that's what he's going for, then yes. Right. That makes sense. That's what I, I, it made no sense other than that. But he said right after that is when he panicked and that's when he went to Wesley and they took out that first $400 ATM withdrawal. So what, okay, what was he thinking? He, he wants 62000 Is he just going to take it out in little increments? Is that his plan? Yes. He oh. may not have known that he could only do $400 at a time. Oh. But he literally thought that he was going to go back like every week and pull out a big chunk of money oh. and not get caught. No. Right? So, he had killed Julie only to try to set up Sam. Oh, my gosh. 100% murdered this beautiful girl. 
his just friends. to try to discredit his not only steal his friend's money, steal his life, but let's also take his reputation and, and oh. make him look like a rapist and oh. um, this horrible person. He admitted he had sent the text to Julie from Sam's phone while he was at the theater oh. the night that he was doing a performance. He said he had answered Sam's door. He had invited Julie in. He had asked her to look at something in Sam's bed, and when she leaned over to look, he shot her twice in the oh back of the head. Gosh. And then he had staged the scene to, to make it look like Sam had raped her and killed her, and then run. He admitted he had put Sam's wallet and passport, along with some other items, in a backpack, and he had asked his brother Tim to get rid of that. But Tim was not the brightest bulb either, because Tim went to his parents' house and just tossed it over a fence, oh. and this entire backpack full of evidence, enough to put Dan away for who knows how long, was just sitting there, shell casings in it, wallet, passport, all this stuff. So Tim, he was right when he told her he was doomed. Oh yeah, absolutely. But then a twist comes along. Oh no. And then a new witness comes forward. Remember that stranger that like loaned them money? Because yeah. That stranger, jazz musician Chris Williams, goes to the detectives and shares that he had loaned Dan and Rachel that money how much and was it? I think I think it was two thousand. They kind of it was very vague. It was kind of okay. like a few thousand. Was, okay. But it says he had gone to Dan and Rachel's apartment the morning of the murders because he was supposed to be getting some of some or all of that money back. Mm. Now this had never come up in all those interviews with Dan and Rachel. Remember? Mm -hmm. Okay. This Chris Williams guy says that. Sam was there, like at, at some point Sam um, was interacted in Dan, Daniel's apartment? at some point that morning. Okay. Dan had introduced Sam as his brother and told Chris that he was going to go get Chris's money and then left Chris alone in the apartment with Rachel and was gone for three hours. Dan came back alone, oh. looking very frazzled uh -huh. and out of breath. And gave Chris $400 in cash. Oh, there's your... There's, there's the ATM withdrawal yep. with Wesley. Yep. Chris took it and left. And apparently, while he was with Rachel for three hours, one of the things she was doing was looking online for, for through Help Wanted ads, looking for potential jobs as a topless dancer. Oh, nice. From yeah. Disney to topless. <laughs> Walt would be so proud. <laughs> yes, he would. So the detectives want to know why Rachel never revealed this information when she was telling the detectives about the events because of the day. Because she may be evil, but she also has a little bit of brains as right? far as trying to get away with something. So they bring her back in to interrogate her. As they should. And they keep pushing. And at one point, they give her a voice stress test. And they determine that it sounds like between the lies and changed stories and her voice, a stress test, that it looks like she is being deceptive. Mm. And so she ends up getting charged as an accessory after the fact for helping to cover things up for Dan. Did she, did she know what he was going to do? Did they ever? They never determined whether she knew. Like that Ahead never, of time? Yeah, right. Okay. Right. But it took five years before Daniel came to trial. Why? Honestly, I don't know. One, one reason, I think, is they said that, you know, of course, he confessed everything. But he had since decided he was going to plead not guilty. And all of a sudden, he had started going for reading my Bible. I'm a different person. And he was really changing his whole persona. Quite the actor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, quite the actor. His brother ended up testifying against him. Tim. Tim did. So that he would only get pro probation for his own involvement. Because technically, he was helping too, right? Mm -hmm. The jury found Daniel guilty. And then, of course, you move into the penalty phase. Mm -hmm. And... 
during that time, of course, the parents were speaking and, and, you know, that was very emotional. And this is where also Daniel's defense lawyers, their tactic was to put a lot of blame on Rachel. They tried to say that she was pushing Dan to get the money and that a lot of his motivation was because he felt like he had to, to do this for her. So they end up coming back in one, no, it was less than an hour. Yeah, it wouldn't take me that long. Less than an hour yep. for the death penalty. It was the fastest death pen penalty verdict in the history of Orange County. Wow. Two more years later, in 2018, Rachel's case goes to trial. The so this is now seven years since it happened, right? Mm -hmm. Almost eight. Oh, yeah, it was yeah. 2010. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, the defense's argument is that Rachel actually helped the police because if it had not been for her and those phone conversations, there would not have been a recorded confession. And also, she did insist on going to the detectives with that information about Tim, and that's what got him that backpack full of evidence. So their yeah, argument... But I think her, she's just covering herself at that time. She's every man for himself in that moment, in my opinion. Well, and I think the jury agreed with you. Okay. Because prosecution's argument was that Rachel helped Dan cover up the murders, especially by backing up the Dan story of some this unknown friend of Sam's that was wearing a black hat who had supposedly mm -hmm. left the apartment. See, that morning of the murder, he had told the story that Dan and Sam had left with this other guy mm -hmm. as though this was the person the who might... Person. Mm -hmm. And she had backed that story up. And, of course, she'd lied about some other things. And then she had never mentioned Chris Williams and the money they owed him. Mm -hmm. So, like, all of this led them to think that she was doing the cover-up. So on November 8th, 2018, Rachel was sentenced to 32 months in jail. She was found to be guilty of two counts of being an accessory after the fact. As of right now, you would think that Daniel would be ready to, you know, go to his death penalty at some point. But in 2019, California Governor Gavin Newsom put a moratorium on the death penalty. So he is not facing death right now. He is in San Quentin, San Quentin prison for life. As far as I know, he would have to be, right? If you I have the death so. penalty, you have to be for life. I would think so. No possibility of parole. I yeah. wouldn't parole him. Oh, I wouldn't either. Mm -mm. Absolutely mm -mm. not. The most cold-blooded. That's just, horrible. Yeah, absolutely horrible. For our listeners, Ashley and I have known each other for a while. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we both enjoy doing, mm -hmm. we, may, we may not be good at it, but we pride ourselves on our enthusiasm for <laughs> being able to kind of sit back and... And then think through through things from uh, what we like to call an armchair psychologist perspective. <laughs> armchair psychologist. <laughs> Metal and what's not our business. Exactly. Yes. And offer opinions that nobody cares to nobody hear. Nobody cares about except that's, us. That's exactly right. Yep, yep. So I thought I would throw this at you. Okay. I'm going to offer an unpopular opinion right now. Mm -hmm. It does not surprise me because I'm not sure if I've actually stated this in so many words. He performed in the musical Nine hours yeah. after he had murdered yeah his friend his friend and then went home later that night I after the rap else. party oh it was the last performance and murdered someone else okay but my unpopular opinion is i'm not surprised he performed that night the show must go on i guess and if you had committed a murder what happens if you don't show up to do the lead well, role in right. the musical nine right right they're gonna immediately go well where is he and then they're gonna go look for you and that's the first thread well he was an idiot from the start all of this was stupid it was a stupid motive it was this was a wonderful man a wonderful girl they had so much promise it was such a stupid motive it, why do you think you could withdraw sixty two thousand dollars in one fell swoop and not get caught what part of your brain 
figured this was going to work. And that's the thing that gets me a lot with criminals is they have this the sense of maybe maybe it was the kind of narcissism that comes with being an actor a lot of times. A lot of times these people who all they all all they focus on is just like the spotlight and mm-hmm. the shiny thing and they just think they're not going to get caught. And you nearly always do, especially if it's going to be this messy. Mhm. Yeah, that was something, and of course, you know, you know how TV shows are, like when you watch the interview or, and in, in even in some of the, the articles that I read, and by the way, we will list our sources, but, but there definitely was a play up of that, that idea of he thought he was such a great actor. Mm-hmm. Like he thought he could perform he could his, his he, could, he thought he could fool everybody. He could perform his way out mm-hmm. of this. Mm-hmm. So there definitely was that aspect to it. But, but you bring up, you bring up a good point is like, we're actors ourselves by all right. means. I'm not saying every actor is like, you know, superficial, Right, right. but this man was, I mean, like, like, yeah. like not only is he committing murder over money? Yeah. His friends, yes. these people that he cared about, they liked them. Yeah. Like, but he he wasn't even doing it because he felt like he was in this in this life or death situation unless he was truly concerned that this Chris Williams guy was like a loan shark or something. Mm-hmm. Unless that was the case and he had some actual fear there, it sounded like he just wanted the money to go on his honeymoon. I know. He just wanted to like have some fun with this girl. Yeah. What a horrible human being in yes. every way. Yes. Yeah, yeah. there there we we've, we've all we've all acted with people who are kind of that self-centered actor. Not every actor is like that. There are a lot of wonderful people in the acting field, but you you can all think of that one person that you could go, yeah, I can see him doing that or her or whoever. I agree with you. I'm not surprised mm-hmm. that he performed that night. I think it proves his sociopathy or psychopathy or whatever you want to call it. And knowing that, I think between that information that he performed in the middle of the two murders, that he was at the theater while texting his next victim just to set up his friend. Mm. That means that's... He can almost say that the murder of Sam was not premeditated. Like, went there in the passion of the moment. I was stupid and thought this, didn't think this through. But it's the second one. It's Mm -hmm. the second one where he's trying to cover his tracks and trying to blame his friend for this that I would have said, yeah, no, death penalty. Absolutely. Yeah. And I also... I also go, hmm, you know, you you couldn't get out of the performance because that would have certainly raised some alarm and, and some eyebrows, but you didn't have to go to the rap party. Right? Yeah, yeah. he was obviously not bothered enough. Not He had no conscience there mm-hmm. where he thought, hey, I, I got through the performance. It wasn't my best one because I'm really plagued by what I've done, the literal blood on my hands. Right. No, he went to a party. And then was texting a girl that he's planning to kill. Okay. Well, I told you it was a little dark. It was, but that's all right. Why do you feel like, okay, here's a question thrown back at you. Why do you feel like true crime appeals to, you don't have to say the world in general. I don't know what other people's motives are, but why does it appeal to you? It's so unfathomable Mm -hmm. that you just want to try to understand. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just so awful that it in some morbid way it then becomes fascinating mm-hmm. to try to to figure it out to figure it out yeah i think for me i was thinking about this i was like why am i so this is so some of this stuff is so dark and terrible but it kind of struck me when i was listening to a particular podcast and they were saying saying the case and they were setting it up like like you were earlier for me and as i was listening i was able to figure out why the person had been murdered and I kind of figured out what was going on. I never would have been able to do that without all of the 
years or months or whatever you want to call it, hours of listening, I think it helps me as a person to understand that these people exist Mm -hmm. and to be careful, Mm -hmm. to be very, very careful because any of those situations Sam should have, or that little 16 year old kid to you and I were going, no, obviously these are red flags, but if they didn't know any better, they didn't know any better. And to me, the true crime stuff, as, as sad as it is, and I am sad, I hate that I had to learn about Sam and Julie in this way, Mm -hmm. but it helps future people if your friend is texting you and it doesn't sound like them, if your friend texts you something that says in the, at the end of it, no sex, and you know you guys don't do that, maybe you should not go. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you should call a friend and say, hey, I'm getting really weird texts from my friend that doesn't sound like them, and I'm, I'm feeling the red flags. Right. Could you go with me to go check on him? Or you make a phone call and you don't go unless yes. you hear his voice. Yes. You try to talk over the phone. Yes. Right. I think there's a lot of stuff that we can learn that can help that can help us stay vigilant stay alive and and understand this exists Mm -hmm. so I think that's probably my reason I hate to say the word like it I don't like it I don't like true crime I don't I hope no one likes true crime I learn from it Mm -hmm. because I'm fairly sheltered you know I have a lot of really nice people in my life I have I have unnice people too everybody does but I've been able to identify those unnice people a lot faster right than before yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, I definitely share that same rationale too. And mm-hmm. I, I would 100% agree with everything you've said. But to piggyback on one little piece, when you mm-hmm. talked about kind of like understanding and learning from it, I think I think also an, an additional reason is I've always been interested in like psychology. Yes, and, you too. know, I yeah. thought about taking that as like a minor in college. and but But things like as you said, learning from it, looking for patterns, mm-hmm. mind hunter, yeah. um, th- things like that are fascinating. And, and, and people, you know, not people like us who are just kind of, you know, interested on the side learning, but like people in that field have mm-hmm. learned so much that they've shared and it's mm-hmm. been helped. It's helped to catch serial killers. Mm-hmm. It's helped, it's helped to, as you said, arm people or mm-hmm. make them, uh, more aware of, of steps to take mm-hmm. or how to react or, you know, prevention methods or whatever it might be. So what do you think the lesson is that we can learn from this story? Would you say, like what I said before, if your friend is acting out of the ordinary, don't just go check on them without calling them? Don't, if your friend says, hey, come up with me to move this and he's leading you someplace alone, like, does it tell us don't trust anybody? Because do you think that Daniel had any kind of red flags before this, you know, with Sam, Sam just trusted him. And that little 16 year old kid just trusted him. That makes me think, is he a charming psychopath? And in that case, anybody that that is that charming, be aware. Mm -hmm. Don't just take anything at face value. Yeah. It sounds kind of sad that in a way we're saying, don't be so trusting, Yeah, but we are. I mean, in a way that is kind of a lesson. I think, I think the other thing is, I mean, I, I do think that getting into so much debt, I do feel like that was a priority. Right. I feel like that yeah. was a motivation. It's like, yeah. it's like live your life more responsibly, yeah. you know, handle your own affairs, take care of your business and take care of money. Money doesn't matter over relationships yeah. and people and, yeah. and life, you know, it's like, it's just disturbing. That's all you can say. Right. Well, Sam, Julie, I'm very glad to have met you. I'm very sorry. You were good people. Mm-hmm. That's who we should remember. That's right. Sam Hare and Julie Kibuishi. Cheers to them. Cheers to them. 
This episode of Scandal Water was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown, that's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. All music was written, composed, performed, and mixed by Josh Martin. The artwork was designed by Matt C. Adams. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.